This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We're going to go over to the uh, Sacramento News and Review on a bit of a field trip for today's program and talk to some of the good people over there. We expect to speak with reporter and columnist Cosmo Garvin about, uh, well, the article that's in the current Sacramento News and Review. More shenanigans with Arco Arena and its allegedly necessary successor. While we're there, we'll see if any other of their excellent writers want to sound off on today's program. Which we will begin as we like to do with On This Date in History. The date today is the 9th of September. It was on September 9th in 1499 that the Portuguese navigator Vasco da Gama returned to Lisbon after the first of his three voyages to India. These opened up the sea route to the east and launched a new era in world history. This opened opportunities for great wealth and power for the people of Portugal, who got screwed in the next century, however, because of a Spanish invasion. Spain was doing pretty well right about then because of a lucky bet that Queen Isabella had placed on this crazy guy called Christopher Columbus who thought sure he had a great way to get to India that would beat the Portuguese by sailing west. Didn't work out at all like he thought but did work out pretty well for Spain. On September 9th in 1850 California part of the U.S. for just two years became the nation's 31st state. On this date in 1922, Turkish forces under Mustafa Kemal recaptured Izmir in western Turkey after its Greek occupiers made a panicked naval evacuation. Murder, mayhem, and fire followed. Mustafa Kemal is now better known as Kemal Ataturk, the father of the modern Turkish nation. It's quite a remarkable individual. We've been talking about doing a segment on him for years. We're going to do it one of these days. And on September 9th, In 1966, in response to a national uproar over automobile safety, which was prompted by Ralph Nader's book, Unsafe at Any Speed, the U.S. National Traffic and Motor Vehicle Safety Act was signed into law by President Lyndon Baines Johnson. Nader's book targeted the American automobile industry's neglect of safety issues, including GM's allegedly dangerous Corvair model as focus for his criticism. Although I have to say, a friend of mine in high school had a Corvair. We drove around a lot. I didn't think it was so bad. If you do go back and look at what safety features were available in 1965, it's pretty hair-raising. I am old enough to remember driving around in a car where you had no (laughs) seatbelts. When my grandmother would make an abrupt stop, she would reach over with her arm to keep you from pitching forward. In retrospect, that all looks pretty dumb. But when they would start to introduce things like seatbelts, consumers reacted with sort of a what do you mean? These cars aren't safe reaction that caused the automakers in Detroit to say, well, you know, this is going to drive off customers. So instead, they spent more advertising assuring you that their vehicles were indeed safe. You ain't nothing but a dog. Oh, yeah. September 9th in 1956, American rock and roll singer Elvis Presley made his first television appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show. He became a household name after singing Don't Be Cruel and Hound Dog.
Our quote of the day comes from John Stuart Mill, who said, He who knows only his side of the case knows little of that. Our quote of the day comes from Charles Chincholas, who said, That all men should be brothers is the dream of people who have no brothers. And I guess we'll make it our quip slash joke of the day is as follows. According to Albert Gwynon, people who cannot bear to be alone are generally the worst company. And our bonus quip slash joke of the day comes from comedian Slappy White, who said, The trouble with unemployment is that the minute you wake up in the morning, you're on the job. Our stat of the day comes from the Washington Post which noted that Hollywood last year exposed moviegoers to 17 billion, quote, smoking impressions, unquote, according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Turns out under pressure from anti-smoking groups, Hollywood last year, for the first time, produced more films that did not show smoking than films that did. And what the heck? Let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. Well, it's a good week last week for the trial lawyers in Hawaii. When it was revealed that a Hawaiian man is suing the makers of his favorite video game, claiming he should have been warned that it's addictive. Plaintiff Craig Smallwood said he spent about 20,000 hours playing the Lineage 2 virtual world simulation over five years and that his addiction interfered with his, quote, usual daily activities such as getting up, getting dressed, bathing, or communicating with family and friends, unquote. You know, I'm a little skeptical of this guy's math. If you multiply out 24 hours in a day times 365, you get less than 9,000 hours. He says 20,000 hours in five years? Well, guess we'll leave that one for the lawyers to fight out. If they can find some lawyers that can do arithmetic. All right, it was a bad week last week for cardiologists after a concession stand at the Canadian National Exhibition in Toronto began selling deep-fried butter which is apparently exactly what it sounds like. Finally, it was an ugly week last week for thinking outside the box after an Australian high school teacher assigned students to plan a terrorist attack. Your goal is to kill the most innocent civilians to get your message across, the assignment read. And how about this item from New Scientist magazine? Notes that nature still has plenty to teach us about harnessing the sun's energy, and the latest lesson comes from ancient stromatolites that are still living in Australia's Shark Bay. These stromatolites are layered structures built up by sediment-trapping cyanobacteria, and it is these bacteria that have been found to contain a new form of chlorophyll, the fifth one discovered. It absorbs sunlight in the red and infrared parts of the spectrum and could be harnessed to boost the efficiency of solar cells. Article states that over half of the light from the sun comes in an infrared wavelengths, which kind of surprises me. I thought it was mostly in the visual band. I guess I was misinformed. Anyway, people at MIT and other places want to learn how to use chlorophyll to make uh, solar cells using proteins and 
Various biochemicals and having a range of different chlorophylls with different absorption properties does allow more of our solar spectrum to be captured, which is pretty cool. And from the, well, I'll be damned file, which is a new addition to the program, we have the following. Jerry Della Femina may have helped inspire Mad Men, but the legendary ad executive insists that the AMC TV series makes the 60s ad industry look tamer than it really was. I was over at Capital Public Radio some months back, and uh, Susan over there and I were talking about Della Femina, the legendary ad exec, and she pulled up some data on how he might be, might be found. I thought it was a pretty cold trail, so I didn't pursue it, but uh, I think I'd better. Turns out Della Femina's 1970 memoir, From Those Wonderful Folks Who Brought You Pearl Harbor, has just been reprinted to capitalize on Mad Men's popularity. That is a hilarious book. We talked about this uh, a couple years back on this program. Apparently, Della Femina was in a meeting. They were uh, The account was for, I think, Mitsubishi. They were looking for some kind of a grabber line that would focus people's attention on the company. And I believe it was Della Femina himself who suggested, how about from those wonderful folks who brought you Pearl Harbor? Which apparently was greeted with silence. But doggone it, Jerry Delafamina has been on our wish list of guests we'd like to have on this program. We're going to have to try and track him down. He was quoted in the London's Guardian recently as saying, We made Mad Men look like Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. We drank much wilder, we drank more, we carried on more. Allegedly, for 25 years, Delafamina's agency even ran a secret holiday contest, which everybody voted for the person they would most like to sleep with. <laughs> and the winners were allegedly given a weekend together at the Plaza Hotel. No, we can't verify that. We're just reporting what we're told. And also, from the I'll Be Damned file, we have the fact that yours truly finds himself compelled to defend Dr. Laura Schlesinger, a woman I find odious in almost every respect possible. But the rumor is she's going to be, uh, she's going to go off the air because apparently recently she unleashed on the air a, uh, what's described as a bizarre N-word-laden rant at a black woman who had sought advice on dealing with racist comments. Said Dr. Laura, turn on HBO, listen to a black comic, and all you hear is N-word, N-word, N-word. She then proceeded to repeat the word eight more times. Personally, I can't believe that I'm saying the word N-word because someone out there might get offended if I repeat what Dr. Laura actually said. I find that political correctness sort of inane. Particularly since, as she points out, if you turn on HBO or listen to a black comic, that's about all you're going to hear. Boy, I wonder what they would do with Roots if it aired today. I must say, in years past, when dating a couple of black women, I would bring this topic up. I would say, this, this word really doesn't, doesn't really mean much when, when somebody says it, right? they go, no, no, it doesn't. I'd say, well, then why make such a big deal out of it if a non-black person says it? They said, well... He could mean it in a very racist way, to which I would reply. And he could mean it in a kind of a smirking inside joke, the way some black people do. I don't know, we didn't come to any resolution on this sort of bizarre double standard. But an uproar did ensue when Dr. Laura did this, since prompted her to announce that she was ending her 30-year radio career. So, well, <laughs> something good did come of this. But, I mean, come on. 
Earl Ofari Hutchinson, writing in the HuffingtonPost.com, said, I'm no fan of Dr. Laura, but I have to agree. Black comics and rappers claim they use the N-word endearingly or affectionately or to cleanse it of its racist sting. But the word has a long, ugly history in demeaning and dehumanizing black people, and it can't or shouldn't be made acceptable. I think it really has to be one way or the other, doesn't it? Isn't it racist if it's considered racist depending upon the color of the person using it? Said John McWhorter writing in The Root. There's a difference between hurling the word as a slur and quoting it. Don't we have more important things to do than to condemn white radio hosts for violating a taboo that our own cultural heroes routinely ignore? I just wish Dr. Lord had been thrown off the air because she's an idiot. All right, enough of that. All right, I also want to thank uh, Gary, I forgot to mention, for an email he sent us, citing John Pilger's op-ed piece in truthout.org. This is worth quoting from a bit. Notes, Edward Bernays, the American nephew of Sigmund Freud, is said to have invented modern propaganda. During the First World War, he was one of a group of influential liberals who mounted a secret government campaign to persuade reluctant Americans to send an army to the bloodbath in Europe. In his book, Propaganda, published in 1928, Bernays wrote that the intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses was an important element in a democratic society. And the manipulators constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power in our country. Of course, he later referred to it as public relations rather than propaganda. Do note, though, the Nazis in Germany thought he was really onto something and uh, used many of the principles he first elucidated in their mass movements. Noted John Pilger, Bernays was no rabid right-winger. He was an elitist who believed that engineering public consent was for the greater good. This was achieved by the creation of false realities, which then became news events. Pilger points out some examples of how this is currently being done. Citing the false reality that the last U.S. combat troops have left Iraq, as promised, on schedule, according to President Obama. TV screens are filled with the cinematic images of the, quote, last U.S. soldiers, unquote, silhouetted against the dawn light crossing the border into Kuwait. The facts, say Pilger, they're still there. At least 50,000 troops will continue to operate from 94 bases. American air assaults are unchanged, as are special forces assassinations. The number of military contractors is currently at 100,000 and rising. Most Iraqi oil, of course, is now under direct foreign control. Bilger notes the false reality is that BBC presenters and other reporters have described the departing U.S. troops as a sort of victorious army that has achieved, quote, a remarkable change in Iraq's fortunes, unquote. The commander, David Petraeus, is a celebrity, Charming, savvy, and remarkable. Fact, said Pilger, there's no victory of any sort. There is a catastrophic disaster, and attempts to present it as otherwise are a model of Bernays' campaign to rebrand the slaughter of our First World War as necessary and noble. In 1980, Ronald Reagan, running for president, rebranded the invasion of Vietnam, in which up to 3 million people died, as a noble cause a theme taken up enthusiastically by Hollywood. I think Pilger's right about that. Something I'm not sure whether it's right about, which has me uh, astonished, is the following. Apparently some folks at the Center for International Energy and Environmental Policy at the University of Texas at Austin has calculated that more energy is wasted in the perfectly edible food discarded by people in the U.S. each year than is available 
than is available, I would stress, for oil and gas drilling off the nation's coastlines. Article notes that recent estimates suggest that 16% of the energy consumed in the U.S. is used to produce food, yet at least 25% of the food is wasted each year. They note that's more than could be gained from many popular strategies to improve energy efficiency. It is also more than projections for how much energy the U.S. could produce by making ethanol biofuels from grain. A bad idea if there ever was one. Didn't you just know when George Bush got behind that one that (laughs) something had to be off? But the people at uh, UT note that dairy foods and vegetables are the greatest culprits and that their numbers are likely to be conservative. They're based on food waste figures from the USDA from 1995 on. They note that since then, food prices have dropped and waste is likely to have increased. What's more, the figures do not take into account waste on farms and from fishing. Estimates suggest that between 8 and 23% of the fish caught worldwide are bycatch and are often thrown dead or dying back into the sea. That is something we need to take a look at. Let's see if we can't hear from our good pal, America's foremost political comic, Will Durst. Hey guys, Will Durst here, wondering if anybody remembers a few short years ago when attacking the president was a traitorous act that gave solace to the enemy. Well, not anymore. Beating on the president of the United States these days has become a cottage industry. You're even allowed to call him a terrorist because he refuses to answer the question, when did you stop being a Muslim? And the people who do think he's a Christian don't think he's the right kind of Christian. And as we all know, there are two kinds of Christians. Those who believe the same thing that you believe, and those doomed to spend all of eternity burning in the fires of hell. Bless their little hearts. I'm talking about the new poll that shows that one-fifth of the American public believes that President Obama is a Muslim. A larger percentage than when he was elected. And I know exactly why this is. They're idiots, stone-crazed loons with the jellied brains of someone who gets off on sticking a talk show immersion blender up their nose. On the other hand, the good news is these very same people do agree that he's black. Not just black, but right fist high in the sky while wearing shades and a bow tie black. Makes Spike Lee look like a Scottish guy. Another misconception, since we all know that Obama is only half black. And isn't that just like America? Yeah, yeah, we can elect an African-American president, but first, I don't know, why don't we try out uh, a half-black guy? You know, like a starter Negro, a hybrid, baby steps. Then we'll work our way up to Ving Rhames. Of course, you know who plays Barack in the movie? Tom Hanks. Just like Sarah Lee, nobody doesn't like Tom Hanks. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. Always good to hear from Mr. Durst. Let's see if we can't pack up our microphone and go traveling a bit. Stay tuned. I'm Douglas Everett. Listen to Radio Parallax. Radio Parallax.